Muriel McQuilkin was described by her husband, Dr. J. Robertson McQuilkin, as a smart, creative, articulate woman. The McQuilkins were married for 55 years, and they served in many places all over the world, but what they were most known for and where they served the longest was at Columbia International University, a Christian university in Columbia, South Carolina. Dr. McQuilkins was the president of Columbia International University from 1968 until 2000. And I'm sorry, until 1990. In the 1980s, something started to happen to Mrs. McQuilkin. Muriel begin to see there begin to be a change in her personality uh, her creative spirit that had been so vivacious it began to dim she became fearful she became angry at the smallest things and and with a lot of research they discovered she had been stricken with alzheimer's and it was taking its toll for a while, Dr. McQuilkin was able to continue as president of Columbia University, but eventually as Alzheimer's began to take over more and more of Muriel's life, of her body, he found that he was the one who could only care for her. It became apparent that he needed to make a change. And in 1990, he resigned as the president of Columbia University, International University, a position, as we said, he's held for 22 years. I want to share with you briefly an excerpt of his final speech to the faculty and staff as he announced his resignation. Recently, it's become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time I'm away from her. It's not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it's clear to me that she needs me now full time. The decision was made, in a way, 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. But there's more. I love Muriel. She's a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It's a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. Because the Alzheimer's was so advanced, many people felt that this would be a, a short 
stepping away from his position at Columbia International. And uh, it would be maybe a few months, maybe a couple years at the most. But many believe because of Robertson's attentive care to his wife Muriel that she actually thrived and she lived another 13 years. When she finally succumbed to that terrible disease, Dr. McQuilkin said, I don't see how I could have any more grief. The passage that we're going to consider this morning in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount is a passage that addresses the complete opposite of what we've heard read earlier this morning and what we see modeled by Dr. McQuilkin. Uh, It's a passage that I know can be dark for some of us, and yet the reason I had two very positive things to begin is because I think when we consider the opposite, we need the positive backdrop so that we can lean back into what God has. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 5, and I want you to listen as I read Matthew 5, 27 to 32. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, it is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let me just say right now, as we get ready to go into this passage, there is a real possibility that Uh, some will have memories dredged up that they thought they had gotten over. And I get that. Others will struggle with feelings of guilt when they believe they had already confessed that sin. And I, I get how that can happen too. And some may think that maybe they're being singled out, which is not the purpose. So allow me to say now what I said in my prayer, and I'll reiterate it later. God knows. God knows our lives. He knows our ups and downs. He knows our mistakes. He knows our joys. God knows. God loves. God loves you and me, and he loves us in spite of sometimes our choices and our circumstances. He loves us, and God forgives. So hold on to those three truths. God is faithful to us, and he expects us to be faithful to one another. Charlene and I have had the privilege of being involved in the lives of now. It's over 100 uh, couples as we've provided pre-engagement counseling. Yes, that's a thing. Premarital counseling and even marriage counseling over the past 35 years or so. And you know what? In our experience, there are three realities, three realities that, that are seen to be consistent in every relationship we've ever dealt with. First, in our experience, no one gets married 
with an idea that they will eventually just go out and cheat on their spouse. No, nobody walks into it saying, this is great, but I just can't. No, nobody walks into marriage thinking, we're going to cheat. And secondly, the word cheat, I use that word specifically because it seems like across the board, universally, when couples talk about the topic that Jesus calls adultery, that the Old Testament calls adultery, the word cheating seems to be the word that everybody uses. And so everybody kind of knows what you're talking about when you talk about cheating, and that's never considered acceptable. Thirdly, no one that we have dealt with ever entered their marriage with the idea that it was a temporary agreement. Uh, years ago, several not, not too long ago, there was this idea that sociologists put out there that some marriages were starter marriages. Uh, the idea was it was like a, a starter home. You buy your first little home, and that's a starter home, but eventually you know you're going to sell that home and move into something more substantial. And they said that there are people that walk into their first marriage as a starter marriage. I've not run into those people. The people I've dealt with saw it as this is it. This is, we're going to do like the McQuilkinsons, till death do us part. Bear that in mind as we move along. We have here in Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus is setting the standards, this is his vision statement, his mission statement for all of us who say we'll follow Jesus. We have his standard, and, and simply stated, God's standard is faithfulness. And so what Jesus begins with is the seventh command. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. God's standard for his people was a standard of faithfulness. Marriage, as it was designed and, and put together and shown to us in Genesis 2, was designed from the beginning to be a, an unbreakable union. That was God's design. In fact, the word that is used in Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. It's a word that if we were to put a, a 21st century word to it so that we could understand it, it's the idea of being welded to. Now, I don't do welding, but I do woodworking. And there's a similar principle. My friends who do welding tell me when you take two pieces of steel and you weld them together very well, they are stronger at the weld than anywhere else. And I know when I take two pieces of wood and I glue them together and I, I let them set long enough and I have them clamped together, that glue seam, when it's done properly, it's the strongest. That's the image God wants us to have. That's, that's the ideal. And, and so, and in fact, God would later on take that word picture and through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, say that marriage is more or less a picture of Christ in the church. So God holds it in high regard, and Jesus holds it in high regard. So even if you don't know Jesus, you would look at his words, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, and, and anyone would say, yep, you better not cheat on your spouse. But remember in these sections, Jesus says, here's the, here's the law, but he takes it to the heart of the matter. And he continues, but I tell you. Remember, this is not, as we said last week, this is not Jesus giving an antithesis. It's not Jesus saying, well, here's the opposite. He's saying, here's the law. 
here's what's really underneath it. Because remember, underneath the law is always a heart issue. And he said, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus, in these two sentences, references two of the Ten Commandments. The seventh commandment is very clear. You shall not commit adultery. The seventh commandment is is what one uh, scholar said. It's an external commandment. It's something that you can see. It's something you can deal with. But the tenth commandment says, you shall not covet. And what Jesus says is, not only is there the external adultery, but there's the internal coveting that that can actually lead to that. The violation of the Tenth Commandment can lead to all kinds of sin. And so the second thing that I think Jesus wants his hearers and us to know is simply this. The source of sin is the heart. We saw that uh, in our Bible study, our Wednesday night Bible study, as we were looking through James 1. That, you know, God doesn't tempt us. Temptation comes from inside when we're enticed. Now, here's the thing. Here in Matthew, it's very clear that Jesus is speaking to men. I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And while it takes two to commit adultery, things in the first century had gotten bad enough that typically a woman was blamed for the adultery. You need to look no further than that little section in John 8 that the scholars say, well, we don't know if it fits here, but it's a woman who was caught in adultery and only bring her to Jesus. Because in that time frame, she bore the brunt. A woman, in fact, we'll see it in a minute, even in that time period, a woman did not have a legal right to file for divorce. So Jesus speaks directly to men. The application, though, is for all of us. Let me start here. To look lustfully at a woman, what does that mean? Well, to look lustfully at anyone is describing this desire to possess. One person described it this way. Lust is antithetical to true love. It dehumanizes another person into an object of passion, leading us to act as if the other were a visual or emotional prostitute for our use. On the one hand, it is not wrong to acknowledge the physical beauty of another person. God has made people beautiful. And, you know, if I look at my wife and we're, we're talking about someone, I say, you know, she's really pretty. My wife would go, yeah, she is. Or my wife would say, that's a handsome guy. Say, yeah, he is. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging that. I cannot, but there's, a, there's something that happens when my mind goes to not only acknowledging that, but then beginning to fantasize about possessing that person and engaging that person in the most intimate of physical pleasure. When Jesus says, you do that, you cross that line, and you've also violated the seventh commandment in your heart. You and I cannot hide our thoughts from God. 
nor do you and I, be, or will God allow us to deflect his truth to justify ourselves. What do I mean by that? I can't blame anyone else for my thoughts. They are mine. As a man, I cannot say before God, well, that woman's attire or lack thereof made me think this way. No, I chose to think that way. I can't blame someone else. I and I alone are responsible for my thoughts before God. No one makes you or me think a certain way. There are tons of things in our lives that come into our lives that we can't control. But according to 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we have a way to control our thoughts. Paul says we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. When any one of us, male or female, looks at another person and in the core of our being, we fantasize about being, that per, being with that person in an intimate relationship. Jesus said, you've not only violated the 10th commandment, coveting, lusting, wanting to possess, you've violated the 7th commandment. Huh. So what do we do? Well, Jesus takes it to a degree of hyperbole. And the point I think he's making is simply this. Be serious about dealing with unseen sin. Remember, Jesus uses those extremes. So he says, so, okay, so what do you do? Well, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your, left hand, your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation. Let's be very, very clear about that. There were some people in church history who actually believed that and acted on it, and it didn't go well. Here's the point. Self-mutilation doesn't change your heart. Self-mutilation doesn't change your, your thought life. But what Jesus is saying is actively put a premium on purity and take specific steps to keep that sin out of your life. When you falter in that area, he's not saying we'll ever be perfect. When you falter in that area, it is sin. List it. Name it. Ask God for forgiveness. But take clear steps to put barriers up so that you won't falter again. It's really not hard, but it requires choices. A couple of examples. You're watching a TV show or a movie or something streaming on the internet and it begins to make you think about someone in the wrong way. Turn it off. Oh yeah, but my friend said this was a great show to binge. If you can't, you know what? You don't have to binge watch it. You don't have to watch it. You make the choice. Remember, if anything makes you Think of a person in such a way that you begin to dehumanize them because you want to possess them. Get rid of it. If you can't control your internet browsing and you find yourself going to sites you shouldn't, I'm telling you, it's worth the money to add a filter such as Covenant Eyes to your computer account and then look for an accountability partner, which is part of what that site does. Watch your humor. Be very careful about the jokes 
You're at the water. Well, I don't know if we have water coolers. We have water coolers anymore. <laughs> That's you know. But you're 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 there with a bunch of people at work, and all of a sudden the language turns coarse. Be the one to say, you know what? I got stuff to do. Just excuse yourself. If it's a fellow Christian doing that, look for an opportunity to come alongside them privately and say, you know, I, I'm kind of concerned about where we went with that conversation. We have to remember this. Man, we need to remember that every woman is somebody's mother or wife or daughter or sister, and we should treat them with the utmost respect. Women, every man is somebody's father, husband, son, or brother, and they are to be treated with the utmost of respect. And when we fail, as I said, name it, ask God for forgiveness, Seek steps that will make positive change in your life. Jesus doesn't set a standard for us that he doesn't give us all that we need to keep the standard, including the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we depend on him. But Jesus isn't done yet. He just moves on. He goes on in verse 31, It has been said, Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. God holds us all to a high standard of commitment. God holds us all to a high standard of commitment. You may remember a few weeks ago I mentioned there were these two schools of rabbinic thought that were prevalent in the first century. One followed a rabbi named Shemai. One followed a rabbi named Hillel. And Shemai was the more conservative of the two. Hillel was the more lenient. And their teachings really come to play in this area. When we look at Matthew 5 right here, or Matthew 19, or Mark 10, the key conversations in some of those passages are marriage and divorce. You see, a debate had developed between the two schools. And the debate was, well, what's a legitimate divorce? Shemai said, adultery, period, end, that's it. And Hillel said, no, no, there's so many other things. And, and in fact, Hillel said divorce for any reason is okay. And the debate made it look like that divorce was a necessity as opposed to being an anomaly. Remember, God's original intent for marriage was a permanent relationship between a man and a woman. And in fact, Jesus in Matthew 19, we won't go there today, but he says that they misunderstood what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24 because he said Moses provided the offer of a certificate of divorce because your hearts were hard, not because it was God's ideal. I think something we need to be aware of is divorce is not some kind of modern phenomenon. It has been around for millennia. And, and so Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate. That's what you've heard. That doesn't take all of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 into account. There's a lot more there, but that's what they were boiling it down to. 
And he says, no, it's marital unfaithfulness. And Dr. Michael Wilkins says, marital unfaithfulness is a word that would include any activity of a sinful nature that would divide a marriage. We had a male-dominated culture in the first century and, and earlier. Some would call it a patriarchal culture. Marriage was designed by God to be this wonderful relationship between a man and a woman. But sometimes for a woman, it could be a nightmare. So the law of Moses sought to protect women in marriage. In fact, we don't often turn there, but Exodus 21.10, Moses summarizes the responsibility of a husband. A husband, according to Exodus 21.10, was to provide food, clothing, and marital rights. And then in Deuteronomy 21, 1-4, it said if a man discovered an indecency, he could write a certificate of divorce. The reason for the divorce is not specified. But this is a culture where a woman couldn't go out and get a job. This is a culture where a woman couldn't go out and fend for herself. So a certificate of divorce gave her the freedom to find another man who could provide. It was an act of grace on God's part. But the passage in Deuteronomy goes on to limit that first husband. If she goes out and finds someone and later on he goes, yep, yep, and he issues her a certificate of divorce, the first one can't take her back because he's already declared her indecent. And so God was doing everything he could to provide and to protect marriage and to protect women. When the Hillel camp said any reason, it got so loose that if a woman burned the toast, her husband could issue her a certificate of divorce. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. We need to hold this relationship in high regard. Jesus is protecting a woman who's being oppressed from being divorced against her will because she had virtually no right. She was powerless to contest the divorce. But his standard is high. His standard is very high. If an act is committed that is truly of a sinful nature and it divides the marriage, the husband could break the contract. I remember years ago sitting down with my mentor And we were talking about a situation where there had been unfaithfulness in the marriage. And he told me, he goes, Scott, remember this. Biblically, yes, they have permission to divorce. But God also says forgiveness is important too. And I'm going to tell you, Charlene and I have been involved in healing marriages that had completely divorced and put them back together, and there was forgiveness. It can happen. And so it's not like this is the first thing. In fact, I will tell you a standard in our marriage, and it comes from my wife's background of being a child of divorce. And early on, we made it a decision in our relationship that we will never, ever, ever jest about divorce. Oh, if you do that, I'm going to divorce you. I've heard people say that. We never did. We never joked about it. We never made it part of our conversation because we knew that this is what we wanted. And, oh, by the way, last night we celebrated 45 years of dating. So, you know, 
something's working there. Uh, God wants his people to know that if you send someone out of a marriage for any other reason than this general term, marital unfaithfulness, which is a very different term than adultery, that you make her a victim of adultery. She's forced to remarry. He's holding his listeners to a very high standard of commitment. He's holding us to a high standard of commitment. So for Jesus to say, oh, we just drifted apart, or to say, well, we fell out of love, or to say, well, I just feel tied down, or to say, I'm just not happy anymore. None of those are reasons for dissolving a marriage. God holds us to a high standard of commitment. Bear in mind, the words that Jesus used here are not to be weaponized or condemning. They're intended to set a high standard for God to protect the institution of marriage and the people within it. So what do we do? How do we move on? How, how do we take these words spoken in maybe about 30 A.D. or so? And, and where's the application? I want to leave you with a couple, four principles that I hope will be helpful. Number one, I've said it many times, I'll say it again, God's standard is very clear in the Bible. You and I are to hold marriage in high regard. It's his creation. It's his idea. And the point Jesus was making to everybody was that all should honor marriage and never take it lightly. Number two, God does not hate divorced people. And by the way, there's a, I believe, a mistranslation that's been around forever of Malachi 2.16, and you'll read it in some translations that says, I hate divorce. Well, I don't think that's a correct translation. In fact, I think the current New International Version translates it more accurately that says this, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect says the Lord God Almighty, so be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. That idea that because he was to provide food and clothing and marital faith and marital rights to a woman when he sent her out, God says, you're doing violence to her. Hold it in high regard. God does not hate divorced people. Something that we don't think about, we don't talk about it often, but if you read the book of Jeremiah and the book of Isaiah, you'll realize that God is a divorcee. He issues a certificate of divorce to Israel for their unfaithfulness. In the culture, it was the man who had to initiate the process. But even in that culture, divorce destroys relationships and lives. I know many people who have been divorced, and I have yet to have any of them say to me, that was one of the best times in my life. I would do that all over again. No, I've never had anybody. Because in divorce, ultimately, everybody loses. The children lose. 
because it's relationally, emotionally, and psychologically, and socially, and financially devastating. Both partners lose because there is no pain so great as the pain of a dead marriage and a broken relationship. Everybody loses. Thirdly, in both sections that we've seen here today in Matthew 5, we have been brought face to face with a fallen world. Unfaithfulness happens at every level, and the fact is marriage covenants are broken. Abandonment, abuse, unfaithfulness all break the marriage covenant. Relationship neglect what I mean by that is where a couple maybe live together as roommates, but there's no relationship, there's no love, there's no connection, there's no communication. They just live in the same house, but there's no relationship there. That breaks the marriage covenant. Even if they don't legally divorce, they've made what God said is high into that which is a sham. While God's ideal for marriage is to be a permanent human relationship, it doesn't always happen. Sometimes the marriage is dead. And you know what? Ours isn't to be the judge and the jury. God is the judge. We are agents of God's grace. We walk alongside those and help them grow in their faith from the ashes of the pain and the brokenness. And fourthly, never forget, God knows. God knows what went on. God knows what you suffered. God knows what happened. God knows the struggles. God knows our joys, our failures, our sorrows. God knows and God loves. God loves you and God forgives. And God gives second chances. And God redeems broken lives. And God heals marriages and God heals people. I was told as a when I train for counseling, to not leave your client in despair, but to give them something to hang on to when they leave. I want to give you something to hang on to. It's a, another story. Charlene and I have very, very good friends, and both had been through much pain and heartache in their lives. In fact, right before we moved here, for almost three years, I walked with him through the shattered brokenness of a messy, messy divorce. I would get phone calls at all times. I would, be, I would spend at least a minimum of one evening a week just at his house, just listening. For her, it had been a life of heartache and abuse. It wasn't until I met her and began to kind of put things together that I realized that when I supervised a custodial crew in a classroom building at Grace College when I was a seminary student, that she actually was there most days while her boyfriend was mopping floors, and then he would take her back that night and beat the tar out of her, and I did not realize that. And she had relationships after that. Her own testimony was, she said, I was the woman at the well. They met. And past baggage and all that they brought with them, they grew into love. And they asked me and Charlene if we would sit down with them and help them take their shattered past and put it together in a marriage. 
And we had the privilege of performing their wedding ceremony. In fact, I remember at the wedding, I walked up to my friend. I put my arm around. He's a big old guy. I put my arm around him. I said, you know what? For the past three and a half years of my life, I've spent two of them with you. And we both had a good laugh. Her children truly became his children. In fact, for that marriage, I wrote a, 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 a vow for him. And he looked at those kids and he said, I promise to love your mother and I promise to love you as I love your mother. And they, 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 they bonded together as a family. That was nearly 27 years ago and they are still together and still going strong. It was a few years after that wedding that I happened to be back in our old town. We were back there for some event. We were sitting in the gym around circle tables, drinking lemonade like you do at church events at gyms. And he got up to go get her another beverage, and she looked at me. And the tears began to flow from her eyes. And she said, I love that man. Thank you and Charlene so much for being there for us. You see, sometimes authentic love relationships look like a storybook. But many other times they're built in the crucible of pain and heartache of daily life as we discover that the holy God who has high standards is also a gracious God who walks with us through the messy tapestry of our lives to make something that in the end beautifully reflects him. God has high standards. And those standards are high because they're designed to protect us and to help us be more than we ever thought we could be. And when you and I determine that with God's help we will respect each person and that we will treat them with the honor and dignity that they deserve, that we will be people who are true to our word, God is honored, lives are changed, and relationships that last are forged. Father, thank you for your word today. On the one hand, I'm thankful that your word doesn't pull any punches. On the other hand, sometimes it's hard that your word doesn't pull any punches. But remind us this morning, remind us this morning yet again that you truly are a God of love and grace and mercy and that the standards to which you hold us to are not handcuffs, but actually there is freedom to be all that we can be before you, to all that we can be as you've designed us to be when we fit into the parameters you've set. May we be people of commitment and people of grace and people of love and people who treat others with respect and dignity for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.